City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Welcome to the 23rd year of the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, which come to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Tony Awards as well, and we are very pleased to be able to bring to you these seminars, which offer a rare opportunity to hear from performers, producers, playwrights, directors, costume designers, all the people that work to bring the magic of theater to you. It is a wonderful thing that we have these theater professionals discuss with us and with you the realities of working in the theater. Since we first introduced these seminars, there have been over 800, enormous amount of people, talented, talented people that have come to you to be our guests and to share with you and with each other what it is to work in the theater. As many of you already know, the wing is more than the Tony Awards. These are given for a distinguished achievement in the theater. But we are a year-round organization. This, everybody, is a Tony Award. And this is just once a year that this happens, and very important once a year. But throughout the year, the wing works to bring theater to the community. It is a service organization. We have a major goal of developing new audiences. And to achieve that goal, we have delivered programs that reach out particularly to young students. Five years ago, we established Introduction to Broadway. And since that time, over 58,000 young students from the high schools and junior high schools of New York City have come to Broadway to see for majority, their very first Broadway show. In addition, our newest program, which is Theater in Schools, is just that, with the people in the theater, such as these that are here today, go out to the schools and discuss what it is to work in the theater on a one-to-one -one basis with the youngsters. This is not done as part of the curriculum. It is for the students a chance to decide whether they want to hear this or they want to go out and play spitball. So they choose to do what we are offering to them, listening and working and seeing what it is to work in the theater. We have a hospital program that goes back to the days of World War I and World War II with the famous stage door canteens. And we have performers from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret circuits going out to hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and children's wards to deliver a piece of theater and a bit of magic to those that cannot come out to the theater. We're proud of the work that we do, happy to have this wonderful working relationship with the theater industry, and we're grateful 
to everyone who makes what the American Theatre Wing does possible. And so now, I hope that you'll enjoy and learn from today's seminar on the performance in working the theatre series. I would like to introduce George White, who is president of the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre and very esteemed director, both here and abroad. George White, who will co-chair with Brendan Gill, author, critic in residence at the New Yorker magazine and on the board of the American Theatre Wing. And they, in turn, will introduce this esteemed panelist to you. Thank you very much for being here. On my extreme right is Adam Pascal, who is currently playing Roger in the hit musical Rent, his theatrical debut. He has been writing music for 12 years. And next to, uh, uh, is, uh, to Adam is Daniel Massey, a veteran film and stage actor both in New York and London, currently starring in Taking Sides. He has appeared on Broadway in such shows as She Loves Me and the London Revival of Follies. And next comes Jay Hunter Morris, who originated the character of Tony in the show Master Class. An accomplished singer, he has starred in several operas across the country. Last year marked his debut with both the Metropolitan and the Utah Opera Companies. And next to me is Jean Smart, currently appearing in Fit to be Tied. She was last seen at Playwrights Horizons in The End of the Day. She has had her Broadway debut in the show Piaf and Off-Broadway in Last Summer at Bluefish Cove. George? Uh, thank you, Brendan. Um, farthest out is... Uh, on my left is uh, Justin Kirk, who currently appears in uh, Wicked Old Songs. He uh, recently re uh, completed filming the movie version of Love, Valor, Compassion, uh, in which he uh, recreated the character, which he did on Broadway, of Bobby. Uh, on his right is uh, Jim Dale. Uh, Jim arrived on Broadway playing the lead role in Barnum and will soon be appearing in Candide. His other shows include Joe Egg, Scapino, me and my girl, and travels with my aunt. And on my immediate left is uh, Jessica Bovers, uh, who is starring in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And she made her uh, Broadway debut last year in Beauty and the Beast. She's a native of Chicago. Her recent credits include Romeo and Juliet, Secret Garden, and Gypsy. And she's a grad graduate of the Cincinnati Conservatory. And I'd like to uh, begin, I think, today by talking, uh, asking Jim Dale a question um, of how you got your start, but really how you got trained, because obviously you, you uh, bridge so many talents of dancing and singing and acting and all those things, and is this a particularly, uh, is there a particular way they do this in Britain to start off, or, or how, how did it begin for you? Well, my, my father, uh, when I said I'd like to go to see, I'd like to be on the stage, preferably making people laugh, he said, well, I think you should learn to move. And uh, so I, I studied ballet and tap for six years, and then I joined show business as an impressionist. I wasn't a very good one, because I used to do impressions of my mother's rent collector, and the, <laughs> people like that. Nobody, nobody thought it was funny, so um, <laughs> I, I then had pennies thrown at me, and in England they had huge pennies, and that's when I realized when my father said you must learn how to move, I know exactly what he meant. So <laughs> that's when eccentric comedy dancing came into it, just to keep moving on that stage to avoid any missile that came hurtling down. Um, obviously the best training any young budding comedian can have is in front of a, uh, an audience and I was very lucky to have spent 
the very early part of my years from the age of 17 in music hall in England touring around um, a different town every week uh, 150 to 200 theatres over the next two or three years that's a lot of work and you 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 learn such a lot you break down that fourth wall and you you make contact with an audience and uh, it, it stays with you for the rest of your life so you have an easy free-going um, feeling once you walk out onto that stage also with the knowledge that you have had the training to move on that stage to be able to do what exactly you're called upon to do. That was my training. I didn't have an acting lesson and I still haven't. Maybe I need one but um, I, I didn't have, I had practical experience all the way through my life and that really was the best way to learn. Was, was your father uh, a performer too? No, my father played the piano and so it probably from him that I, 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 uh, I started to sing and, uh, and harmonize and uh, pick up old show tunes that he used to remember his grandfather used to play. Yes. Now this is a the exact opposite of perhaps what has happened with Adam. This is ma you're making your debut. You've been working or, or learning uh, other skills and things and all the music that you've been doing. Right. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically getting all of my, my experience on the job. Um, right. It started downtown. Um, well, how did that happen? Um, it, was, it was a real, uh, a real fluke, actually. Um, I was uh, playing in a rock band that I'd been in for about 12 years. And um, I'd left the band, and about four months later, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's a talent agent that he had heard, heard about this off-Broadway show that was a quote-unquote rock opera, and uh, they were looking for this particular role, and he thought that I would be um, appropriate for it. So he asked me if uh, I wanted to audition. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, the reason I auditioned was, was solely for for the experience of auditioning for something. I had never auditioned for anything before. So I was going into it only thinking I would get as far as just that first audition to see what that actual process is like, and then it sort of snowballed from there. But, now, but that isn't unusual in this particular show. Are there other people making their debut? Or uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly other, other cast members making their Broadway debut. Um, primarily, mostly everyone has had theater experience, whether it be um, off-Broadway or... Um, in other cities or things like that. I think um, myself and Idina Menzel are the only two cast members who are actually uh, performing in a, in a production such as this for the first time. And how do you feel about the audience? Jim was saying that he learned how to have a relationship with the audience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, if playing, in, playing in rock clubs, you certainly you, you learn a thing or two about audiences. And what I learned was that a lot of times they don't pay attention to what you're doing. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, um, when we started downtown, the, the response was immediate, um, and the, the audience was so intimate, they were as close as this audience is here today. So um, if anyone has seen the show, you know how intense it is and how in-your-face it is. So to, to be that close to it is, uh, is, is quite an experience. Um, so, you know, getting that intimacy and that connection with an audience is very important, and that's something that, that we as a cast um, were were lucky enough to have had right from the very beginning. And, and then when we moved uptown, um, we were also lucky enough to have the audience be pretty much just as close. Now, are you going to think of yourself from now on as an actor rather than as a composer? I'll, I'll always think of myself or? as a musician first. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but acting certainly has, has bitten me, so I no. think that I'll... I'll consider that second. I wanted to pick up on that a little bit because what did you, what do you find now suddenly making that shift or you've had to make the shift right. perforce because it's been truly thrown at you. Absolutely. What do you find uh, that you have to do because you come out of a music background rather than being trained through the usual. Right, right. Uh, with all the things. Well, I mean, the, uh, the, the music portion of, of this show 
was always always came easy to me, and obviously because that's what I do. Um, the acting uh, aspect of it didn't come as easy, although it was much easier than it could have been um, given the circumstances. Um, I was very lucky to have had Michael Greif and uh, and Tim Weil and Jonathan Larson to to um, to nurture me, you know, and to really help me find this character and find myself as an actor. It's very easy for, for a director to take a first-time actor like me and, and say, all right, do this, stand here, do this, act this way, be happy, be sad. You know, and, and Michael didn't do that. He was very nurturing and very open and, and basically allowed me to find myself as an actor, and I think that's why, that's why it works. You know, he didn't force me into any particular direction. He let me find that direction myself. Uh, well, excuse me. The the speaking of music uh, that somehow lends itself to move over to Daniel Massey, um, who is playing, <laughs> uh, and and I one I'd like to know how, how again your your background and your training, but also I, I'm fascinated because I want to leap to that and taking sides where you play this great conductor, um, whether or not you watched films of him. Uh, what you did to study for that role, too, because it's, it, it's certainly bigger than life. And as I said to you before we, we were aired here or, or taped, that although you are tall, you are bigger than life, too. And I don't think you put risers in your shoes to do that. Huh. No, no, I don't. <laughs> do that. Well, I started much as Jim did, I think, in, in repertory theater in, in England. When I started, we were blessed, my generation, with an awful lot of repertory around the country and uh, most of us dove into r repertory where we played uh, 30 to 40 parts in a year if you were in in weekly rep and that was a training that, that now is denied everybody and it's turning into a crisis because as Jim said the the, the audience for the interpretive artist that the actor is is like a f another player in the proceedings if you don't get on terms with the audience if you can't learn how to deal with an audience. Provoke it, persuade it, endanger it, make it laugh, make it cry, control it, dominate it. Then it's very difficult to learn the trade. And you can only learn the trade if you are constantly, consistently exposed to it, particularly when you're young and learning over a long period. And I think over here, uh, as well, you, there is something of a crisis developing because if you don't have enough opportunity to work that audience in a, in a lot of different parts, uh, it's awfully difficult. What's wonderful to me and, and uh, Vincent, we hope you were asking the question about is so many young actors now get their training in television, the only mm -hmm. experience they have, and then they go on the stage and they are simply wonderful. Now, how have they managed to become so wonderful without that experience of the audience? Well, I don't that? know. I actually don't know. And I think, I have to say sometimes, I don't think uh, gifted as they are, because the gift is there, uh, just as it's always been. It's a fabulously gifted people. Some people can get up and do it, but uh, uh, some can't. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the big classics in Shakespeare, they're thrown now in the, the deep end, and often they, talented as they are, they, they're not ready for it. And uh, I, I, I'm desperately trying in in London and around the country in England to get ensemble companies started again, because I think if we don't, uh, the theatre is going to be in trouble. See, in America, we've always had great difficulty having a repertory. We dreamed in New York of having a repertory theater, but it never worked. Because you can't, you, you see, culture is a luxury here. 
It, it isn't, in my view. It's a necessity. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to some extent, that necessity is being vitiated in England now, since Thatcher came to power 20 years ago. We, we, our subsidy is, 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 is minimal. There's no subsidy here. And, and until the country turns that around, uh, it's always going to be a fight. You see, you can't, I, I don't think industry uh, can patronize a theater, because if, if industry goes through a recession, it'll pull the plugs on the money, and the theater dies. Both the democratic ticket. Now, but, why, but why isn't there a refugee in New York City? Well, because for precisely for that reason, the city, the state, the federal government does not fund it. And I think that is a cultural necessity. The world of the, it includes education, the whole world of the imagination. The English-speaking world is going through a, a crisis for that reason. But is it, must it depend on, on federal funding? Is yes, it, it, I believe it does. I believe there is absolutely an incontrovertible case for state subsidy of the arts. But look how much we have, look how much theater we do have in Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway yeah. as well, that are in part funded by private corporations. There's a responsibility almost to them. Well, that's fine, but, but it's, it's a responsibility that is at the mercy of, of, uh, of, of uh, the money markets. Right. Instead of the mercy of the government. Well, the government is, uh, has to do it. I mean, I, you must somehow get the government to do it. Well, the National Endowment has been cut from 178 million to 99. I didn't mean to yeah. no, no, that, <laughs> that is a whole issue. Um, but it is so desperately difficult. Now, for Jay, for example, imagine making your debut, as you were able to do with the Met and the Utah and all that. But opera companies all over the United States are in, entirely in, always in jeopardy. They're mm -hmm. always worrying where the money is going to come from. Opera is, I suppose, the most expensive single form of, of uh, performing arts that we have. Uh, now, in your case, how did this all begin? How, how did you get the opportunity to go into music school at a very early age, or what? Uh, well, I grew up in a small town in Texas, um, and I grew up singing in church and in uh, garage rock and roll bands and such. Um, but I, I saw an opera a few years ago that kind of changed the way I thought about singing. And What was that opera, and how did you see it? La Traviata, a, a, a friend took me in Dallas, and uh, I couldn't believe it. I it's mean, the I, perfect opera to see, if it's the first opera you've ever seen, <laughs> that's yeah, it. Yeah, it was, it was really, it really changed, uh, especially how I felt about my singing, because at the time I was, you know, strumming a guitar and singing country, and <laughs> to see this lady, you know... <laughs> To see this lady laying on her back, you know, in a 4,000-seat house projecting over, you know, a 70-piece orchestra with no microphone. I was like, how can she do that? <laughs> Floating is beautiful. And it really shook me. I'm like, you know, what I do is so silly <laughs> with, with, you know, the, the natural ability that I have. And so I started studying, and, and uh, I just kind of took baby steps and... and did a few auditions and I've been really lucky uh, uh, and I feel like one of the best blessings I've had is to have gone to the master class audition because I you know I had things were going really well in opera for me and I wasn't really interested in doing it I things are going great I'm happy with with the, the way uh, my career was going but I met Zoe and that changed everything and what are you going to do after that yeah that's exactly <laughs> right then I met Zoe yeah. yeah, and I was like, 
I'll do whatever you want. But you know, it's interesting. <laughs> Texas seems to be a fertile ground for yeah. for opera singers. I don't know why that is, but they seem to come out of Texas and Mississippi. And is it the water down there? <laughs> it's a lack of water no down there. It's a lack of water, Brendan. You're absolutely right. I have no It is. It's so puzzling. There are so many of us. And we don't get it, I don't think, usually for most of us until later in life. I mean, we... Uh, a lot of my friends, you know, we, we grew up singing in country and rock bands. And then somewhere around 23 or 24, uh, we got a bug to try something new. And, uh, now, now, in your okay. speaking voice, you have, you have echoes of Texas. No. What, what do you, uh, I know. What do you do? Uh, <laughs> I said, oh, as kindly as possible, echoes. Beautifully uh, done. Thank you. In your opera repertory, how many parts do you know now? And I've... Uh, a lot. I've done. I've been really lucky. I've gotten to do a lot of different things. I have to be careful the, the way I talk, though, because uh, I had a, an agent once that said, "Jake, you just can't go up and and talk to these people the way you do, and and then expect them to take you seriously as an opera singer." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> to tell the truth, I did try to change for a while. I tried to speak more. <laughs> Have you tried an Italian oh, you know, accent? You... Maybe an Italian accent would. Yeah, happen. but <laughs> I finally said, "Look, if you don't want me, then fine." Yeah. And this is me, and and I'll clean up I my. Your interviews. Yeah, that's a thought. Yeah, I I try to speak clean up my Italian diction as best I can, but my English is hopeless. So. <laughs> Gene, you're next. How did you begin in all this? Well, I was going to lie and say I started in a rock band, too. <laughs> and you were born in Seattle. Born in Seattle, yes. Um, a great theater city. It is. It's terrific. There's, there's more theater, equity-approved theaters than any other place in the United States except New York. Yes. I was, I was very fortunate when I got out of school. I was able to make my living as an actor in Seattle uh, for a few years before I decided to move to New York. Um, I was thinking of some things that... You had, you had said about kids seeing things at an early age and getting inspired, and again, that's one of the problems, is somehow the attitude towards theater in this country, because so few people in this country go to the theater, there's still this, this feeling somehow that going to the theater is sort of an intellectual experience. It's sort of like being dragged to a lecture, or dra you know what I mean? Is that people think, oh, the theater, it's going to be some highfalutin thing that I'm not going to be able to identify with, not realizing that a play can deal with any subject matter, just the same as a movie or a television show or a, a song, and to expose kids to it when they're young, so at least they're comfortable with the idea of theater as a form of entertainment. I was very fortunate. I had a maternal grandmother who took me to the opera and took me to the theater when I was very... I think the first movie I ever saw in my life was The Red Shoes, uh, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, I grew up on Disney like everybody else, but that made it a huge impression on me. And I'm not saying that's why I went into the theater, but it certainly was a place that seemed uh, familiar and comfortable and, and exciting. Did uh, you do training in school? Were you in yes, college? Yes, I went through what? a BFA program, which was a, it was a terrific program. Yes, I was, it was run by Duncan Ross. You know, did you know Duncan Ross? He was from the old Vic. He ran the old Vic for a while, and then he was at the University of Washington in Seattle for several years, and then he was down here at USC, and then he yeah, passed yeah. away. But... Uh, he set up a terrific program where we were, we were exposed to all these different styles of theater. We did Commedian, we did Shakespeare, and, and uh, we, we did it all. And we had a terrific uh, uh, faculty, and they would bring in guest directors. 
And so we were sort of, we were lucky. We were, it was a smaller group and we were treated like professionals. Mm -hmm. And it was, so it was a much more sort of traditional way of getting into theater. The thing that I wish the more theater schools would have is a class on the realities of the business. And I don't mean just every once in a while bringing in a professional actor to talk about their career, because that usually ends up with them telling theater stories, you know, or stories about parts they did or something, which is, which is great, too. But uh, an actual class where they talk about, and not just auditioning and meeting agents, but I'm talking about what you do when you're an actor and you're married and you have children. And, and, mm -hmm. and I, mean, I still find out things about the business that are, that are shocking that are totally the business end of it right. you know especially in in out in california in film and television why people get jobs how things are funded you know where the money comes from why people you know because as an actor you have to accept the fact i think especially in the um, in film and television not so much in theater certainly is that if you are right for the part or the best or gave you a best audition that is not remotely number one on their list of priorities. That mm -hmm. is not what is going to get you the job mm -hmm. most of the time. That is something that will either break you and make you nuts, or you will learn to somehow deal with and have, I guess, a sense of humor about it. But things like that, I wish that theater schools would deal with more, because they sort of push you out into the world, and you're all sort of, uh, you know, you have these sort of lofty ideas about your career and, and work, and you're sort of, starry-eyed and naive and and it's at least I don't think it's going to necessarily deter anyone from trying a career in as an actor but I think at least when the realities come up they're not such a big shock mm -hmm. at least you've been forewarned uh, yeah. <laughs> Justin what are the realities for you and how did how did you get going and maybe we can address a little bit of these in these seminars today yeah. <laughs> uh, well uh, I've been, you know, I wish I, uh, I've been hacking it out since I was a toddler. <laughs> I did, uh, my first play was uh, the Caucasian Chalk Circle at age seven uh, at the Evergreen State College. My, my stepfather at the time was a, a young acting student, and I'd already been, you know, chomping at the bit since age three at that point, so <laughs> it was a long time coming. And I, w it was in a, uh, I was living in a very small uh, town in Washington State, um, I went to grade school on an Indian reservation and things. It was like 200 people, the size of the town. And, it, and when I was 12, I moved to Minneapolis and uh, started going to a, uh, a theater high school at a, a place called the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis. It was when, in the John Donahue. That's right. At the, during that era, yes. And uh, it, it changed my life, to say, the, to, say, to say the least, because, you know, Minneapolis was sort of urban sprawl compared to where I had come from and the theater was a, a, a truly sort of amazing place to grow up until it all came <laughs> crashing but down. But you know it's interesting, scandals. Minneapolis uh, like uh, Seattle is a very hot theater town. And, and remains as such, yeah, yeah. And the most interesting uh, of the theaters aren't, aren't even necessarily equity houses or uh, you know, I mean, you've got the Guthrie and 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 uh, various other sort of rep theaters, but well, how did you when you then you came to New York? How did then that I happen? came to New York? Yeah, with a chip on my shoulder at age twenty, I already knew knew it all. You know, <laughs> right. and, and studied at the circle in the, at the yeah, right. Not anymore, but then I, I did, and yeah, then I, and I went to the circle in the square for for yet more more schooling. 
And, and, and then did you audition for Love, Valor, Compassion? Was that your first big... Uh, it was, no, I, uh, my Broadway debut was a play called Any Given Day, which was uh, not as, as big a hit, to say the least. <laughs> but it was a really wonderful uh, part, and uh, that was the season previous to, to Love, Valor, yeah. Uh, Jessica, you can clean up here. <laughs> uh, uh, Again, your training, uh, where did you start and was it in musical theater? Was it in uh, how? Where, where? No, I had a similar beginning as it was when I was very young because my mother was an acting teacher. So um, I took advantage of all the nepotism I could and <laughs> I got to do the children's hour and runaways when I was 10 and 11. And, um, and Chicago is where I'm from, which is yet another wonderful regional theater town. Um, I was fortunate to be able to work at some theaters before I went away to college and do eight shows a week and know what it felt like and, um, and learn some of those lessons she was talking about actually before I went to school, which I totally agree. They don't teach you how to just live, live life as an actor as opposed to um, just how to audition. <laughs> and, um, and I resisted coming to New York with all my power because... Um, because as Daniel was saying, I, I, I wasn't ready to do one show for a year. I thought maybe in Chicago, uh, you, you can't do the amount of plays you can in a, rep in a repertory company, but you can do maybe eight or nine plays in a year in Chicago. You can, you know, you can hop from theater to theater. You may only make um, $300 a week, but you, you can live on that at 22 years old in Chicago, as you can't here. Um, and uh, I had a agent convinced me to come and audition for Beauty and the Beast, so I did, and got it and came here and, and moved back to Chicago after six months and still said, no, this isn't, this isn't time yet, and um, was convinced once more to come and audition for Forum. So, um, so, you know, my boyfriend jokes I was Gandhi in a past life because I've been very lucky here in New York, but um, unfortunate. But... Um, but I don't know if I'll stay or what, you know, what well, the future it's brings. The, it's one of the mysteries. We've just been in, in England. London is the key city in France, Paris. Uh, New York shouldn't be the key city in the United States. If we had a key city, it should be Washington, plainly. But here we've been talking about how, what a wonderful city Seattle is, what a wonderful city Chicago is, what a wonderful city Minneapolis is, and yet all of you, reluctantly or otherwise, feel a, a, a tug, a drawing, a necessity here. to come to New York. Now, to start with you, here is Seattle. Why isn't that the perfect place for you always to be? You just have to come to New York. Mm -hmm. Well, I, when, when I was in theater school, of course, there was also, the, there was a snobbery about L.A., you know, you weren't going to go to L.A. You know, you were, <laughs> you know, going to go to New York and be a real actor. Um, and so that was always my fantasy when I put away a little bit of money, you know, that I would go to New York, and I finally did. And I was very fortunate, and I started to work uh, right away. But that, I don't know why. That was always that was the place mm -hmm. to go. And mm -hmm. then after I was here for a few years, I auditioned for a television show, and I thought... I'd never done anything in front of camera, and I got it, so I thought, well, I guess it's time to find out what that's all about. Right. You know, so I went out there for a while. Well, now, uh, and Jessica, you, you said you, you had an agent, and I know people uh, watching this who are aspiring actors, 
You had an agent? Well, how, how did that happen? Actually, uh, um, my university, as many of them do now, brought us to New York as a group, my senior class, and we did a showcase. Um, and this was in, uh, conservative in Cincinnati? Yes, CCM. And, um, and because of uh, people working in the profession now from that school, uh, agents came to see the, um, the workshop, the showcase. And from there, I mean, it was, it, I imagine it took four or five years off some of our stay in New York. They, they brought us in for interviews and then they offered to sign some people or if you told them one agent wanted you then all of a sudden everyone wanted to sign you or you know whatnot. But um, if, you can, if you are, if you do, if your dream is to come to New York and that's what you want to do, I, I would say at this point if you don't go to a school that does something like that, you're putting yourself behind the eight ball. I mean it's so much easier if they can do that for you as opposed to coming to New York and getting together with friends and trying to get people to come see your work. That's such a battle. And you have to work. You have to, you, I have a lot of friends who, who are actors and struggling actors and they, they study and they work so hard and they're brilliant actors and they don't do anything and they wonder why they don't have an agent because nobody can come see them do anything. So you have to do something. You have to get yourself involved in some sort of production where people can come and see you. Whether it's good or bad, you make sure that you stand out. You know, if you're trying to get an agent, you're trying to get noticed. If you're in a rotten production, if you're whatever you're doing, you just make sure that what you do personally is the best you can possibly do, and eventually somebody will will take notice. Um, I, I, I when did you get an agent? Well, my my situation was a, a a little different than most people's. You know, I mean, when we started downtown, uh, once the show started <coughs> into uh, into production and we were up and running. Agents were just coming down to the show left mm -hmm. and right, and I had it very easy. I had just people. And you auditioned agents, and I assume. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm fascinated by the three of you here: Gene Smart and Fit to Be Tied, and Daniel in Taking Sides. Both have, I think, the longest monologues I have ever heard, and I'm, and wonderfully done, and taking us up and down and around. And here is Jay, who doesn't speak at all in master classes and the three of them hold the stage fantastically well and and hold our attention you'd have to bring a lot of experience each one of of your roles from your roles to get to this how do you manage that how do you manage the long monologues how do you manage absolute silence and yet being a personality and and knowing that you're there all the time, and Daniel, and yeah. how do you? What, well, uh, what is the experience that you have to bring? You have to have yes, something to I mean, call I, on. Absolutely, I, I think it is a very. I always say to people who 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 are sweet enough to ask me what 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 they want to become an actor or an actress, and I say, well, really, wanting isn't enough. You have to need it. Uh. You, it has to be a compulsion because, apart from anything else, the disappointment which happens every day of your life, practically as an actor, is so difficult to face now. I would say to somebody, oh, I want to be an actor. That's not enough. That's not enough. You've got to get the compulsion to get out there and find the work and do it. I don't know how you do that. And God knows that I'd be able to do that now in the, in the, in the present climate. But talking about monologues and holding an audience is exactly what I was talking about. It is. Uh, 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 it, it takes a long, a lot of hard work. I once worked with Ralph Richardson, and Ralph Richardson 
had a script in which he had three different colored pencils, blue, yellow, and red, for the various shades of inflection and meaning that he wanted to put into this particular speech. And it was like a, it was like a sculpture. It was like chipping away at rock day after day after day after day. It's the hard work. I can't describe it any other way, really. Mm -hmm. It's just sweat. But that became part of your learning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and sure. I mean, I duplicate. I have my way of doing. I don't have colored pencils, but I. But I. <laughs> what I, is I your perhaps way? I should get some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is your way? Can you? Well, I, I just. I just. It's. It's. You know. You. you the inferential reading of texts and things and archival footing for Furt Wengler were very useful. But you have nothing if you don't have a text. The text is absolutely everything. Uh, Trevor Nunn once said, the director, well, I was working with him, people ask me, where do I get my ideas for the plays that I do? And I don't get any ideas for plays, I read texts. And I think that the better an archaeologist you are, the deeper you're able to dig into a, into a text, the better the work is going to live. And the more you're going to be able to control and command the, the stage. But the question of yeah, presence what do you is have so to add important. To that? Yeah, oh, but yeah. that you have to learn. Yeah, but if, well, uh, uh, actors can be divided among those who have really astounding presence. They can stand there for an awful long time, and their energy is commanding oh, yeah. the audience. Yeah. Uh, I guess you're born. Maybe you're born with that. I'm not so sure you are. The only actor I've ever seen in my life who had it for nothing was Richard Burton. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the stage. To me, I mean. In The Ladies Not For Burning, Richard came out on the stage and he was sweeping the stage right. and everyone went, shoo! That's <laughs> right. Richard the copying clock. Yes. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. But that's magic. I don't know. You, most of it it's is. hard work. Well, Jim, you know, I would say because we're talking, too, we're talking about Burton and Ralph Richardson, and in a sense, not really role models, although there is something there, but, but mentors directly. Um, well, you come out of also the British musical tradition of Harry Champion and people like that, and Harry Lauder. Did you have anybody that you sort of looked to as a, as a kind of a model, or, uh, or not even necessarily a mentor, but someone that, that taught you a certain amount? Well, what I, what I realized was that a, a great number of the older type of music hall act um, comics, uh, because music hall had died and the, the theaters become bingo halls or television studios, I realized that a lot of those old comics had no work except perhaps in film or television. And they, were, they proceeded to prove that they were very good actors. There are people like Max Wall, who are now called genius. They are the genius, the Buster <laughs> Keatons of this world. Max Wall was an eccentric comic um, who then went into acting, and uh, the, the, the sort of plays that he did were uh, astounding, and he had a wonderful talent. Many, many, many actors, old comics, are still working in England, and they have such a... They've had all that experience, 40 years of communicating. Sid Field. Sid Field. Oh, I, I grew up on See, we're talking about people that probably don't know, <laughs> because they, in England they, they we have Music Hall, you have Vaudeville, or you had Vaudeville. Music Hall is a dying art. That was the, the art of going out there on your own and, and commanding the stage for your, the period of time that you were there, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Um, but as I said, to get back to those, the, the, the people I admire are those old comedians who are now showing that they have so much to give. Notice that word, give, not take. Give. They give when they're on stage all the time. They give to you. Where is that 
knowledge of timing coming from today, though, because that's really what they had. The fabulous timing for the audience. That, that we timing had that is, I, you're born, I think a lot of that you're born with, mm -hmm. but you can also learn it. I mean, yeah. You have to learn. Why is it that your routine as an old, as a music hall comedian, why is it that your comedic routine will go down, in England we say like a bomb? It went wonderfully well. It's the opposite over here. That's um, right. <laughs> exactly. So you can go, uh, the audience can be very responsive one week in a certain area of England. The next week you die a death. Now you can crawl under a stone if you want to, but you can say to yourself, this is the audience, it's not me. Something doesn't work that week. And the next week you do the same material and you're up again. So it's a constant, up and down, and you learn from this. You learn That's that important. you mustn't take it all too seriously. And of course, um, it was vaudeville here too. The, I think the master of timing of all time in America was probably Jack Benny, Jack Benny. who had been oh, a great uh, vaudeville performer. But he not only was able to do that in any form, he did it on radio. So he wasn't God, even, in a sense, present. But he only did it on radio after doing it in front of an audience. Of course, yes. for 25 the years. From the reaction of an audience. Then you can do it in front of a television camera or the films. But you have to know that pause just to give the audience a, a chance to react to that magic, magical moment you give them. If oh. you don't, you tread on your own laugh. That's and a lot of those Marx Brothers routines were learned in the theatre that, that yeah. eventually became Animal Crackers that right. night at the right. yes. I never really thought of it that way, but that is... That is the, uh, the, one of the real values of doing comedy material, is that direct reaction from the audience, which is much harder to, to get when you're doing a, a, a dramatic piece. Um, we mustn't be confused. There are the terrible things. Young, young actors who are given comedic parts, their, their first complaint after two nights is, I didn't get my laugh tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's being very egotistical. You know you're lucky to get your laugh any night. You have to work for that laugh. You have to have the experience. You have to be grateful for that laugh. You don't blame the audience. You blame, you blame yourself. So um, it's very, very difficult to... Uh, to pull it all together and to just go out there and, uh, and give a magnificent how performance. How do you put it all together without knowing these things, without having Well, it, it actually took me, took me quite a while, and I'm, I'm still struggling with it, to, yeah. to, to, to realize that audiences have individual personalities and every night is, is something different. And, you know, our show, we've been blessed um, to have rousing standing ovations at the end of every show. And if, it, if they don't jump to their feet immediately, I go back to the dressing room and say, what's wrong with these people? Don't they get it? What's it? You know, and, and, I, and I, I've, I've needed for, for my fellow cast members to reinforce to me dozens of times, you know, audiences have different personalities and, and they react differently to different things. I mean, just, just the other night on stage, um, one of the cast members in the, in the opening number of, of the show took a really nasty spill on the stage and it, it scared the audience into silence. They were silent the entire show. And I couldn't figure it out until maybe the end of the show. Someone said to me, you know, so-and-so fell and that that really frightens audiences and I didn't think uh -huh. think in terms of that like they were thinking about that instead of right that, exactly that that really affects uh -huh. people and 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 even subconsciously it'll it'll uh -huh. affect their reactions for the rest of the show and the smallest um, the smallest little incident can do that to an audience and so as you were saying about not getting your laugh and things like that it, it, it all ties back into to the personality of the audience and uh, well, Jessica, I imagine you have that with forum goes up and down. Of course, Nathan Lane is such a machine, I mean, of, of, of speed and all. Do you feel that? With, I imagine that has a variety. Oh, of it's been amazing. I could have never have predicted how much I learned from doing a, what beforehand was, oh, you're going to do a light comedy. But 
oh my goodness, the lessons. And some of it I do think maybe people have God-given timing, but I can tell you I have learned immense amounts of information from Jerry Zacks and Nathan Lane and Louis Stadlin and Mark Lynn Baker and um, Ernie Sabella, some of the great comedians of our time. I mean, very vaudevillian. Our whole show is is along those lines and um, it's a constant challenge every night and yes Nathan thank goodness takes on the burden of getting that audience going and laughing every single night but um, but I've been amazed not only to know you know yes it's the chemistry maybe of what's going on on stage and off but so often I'll come off and I'll, uh, I looked at Jerry and and like why why didn't it work tonight and he never would blame the audience you know never it's not you know don't it, it's a science little things you'd say you know point one finger up instead of two or or things that were muddying jokes or it was just amazing to learn all the different aspects of what makes it funny and what's it wasn't from the heart tonight or you know or whether it was technical or whether it was something that you just weren't in the moment you weren't there it's, it's amazing well, sustaining that on the long run, Justin, you did that with Love, Valor, and Compassion. How do you sustain? Um, it's I don't a, know. It's, a, it's, it seems it's to, tough. It seems to go in uh, chunks for me. A couple weeks at a time, things will really be flying, and then a couple weeks. And that long run, talking about Love, Valor, Compassion, I remember when we were still off-Broadway, and we were starting the show, and I was waiting for a scene to start, and I said, Jesus, we've been doing this for like a month or two months or something, and then we went on for a whole year. <laughs> you know, so, but then in like six months in, it's, uh, you know, every night is, is uh, a great deal of fun, and you're, you're learning things. And some you played with Nathan difficult. Lane, too. I with, play, yeah. I mean, and he had, uh, does he he's, become kind of a gyroscope for a cat? Yeah, that's, for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, the thing about, that was great about having Nathan there is he was always sort of, you knew you could always count on him if anything bad in the show went down. You know, like one of our cast members had an epileptic seizure one night or, uh, or the lights weren't working at all. And so we'd just sort of be quiet and look at the floor and wait for Nathan to speak up to the rest of the audience. we <laughs> <laughs> usually have something hilarious to, uh, to get us through it with. There's now a tradition in England that Jim spoke of. Uh, Daniel, did you come from a family of performers? As, uh, uh, yes, I did. Yes, I, did. I, I, I don't think it had much to do with my becoming an actor, actually. I became an actor because I was taken to see Ralph Richardson playing Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One and Two, with Olivier in, in, at, uh, in St. Martin's Lane in, when I was 11. And uh, I can remember every frame of it photographically. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole performance, the makeup, the costume. It's the greatest piece of acting I've ever seen in my life. And it remains so. And I had to be peeled out of my chair. Uh. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go. Uh. I just wouldn't go. I couldn't believe it. it was, he made the theatre seem like a temple. I mean, I know it sounds terribly pompous, but, but it, it, it's something that I felt God, I'd love to be able to do that. Regardless of whatever blood I had, I, I, I mean, uh, I just thought that was he, amazing. He, he and, and, and Gilgud were in a play together. Uh, Gilgud always refers to himself as the weeping knight because he's been able to weep so well uh, yeah, on stage. Yeah. And Richardson was determined to prove that he could weep as readily as Gilgud. And here were these two perfect actors. Hmm. Wonderful, and each of them had his turn at weeping and each of them did it consult. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. that's, that's the way they were. But now these were comic uh, actors that came down in the family like the Lupinos 
I wait. I was asked to do it uh, when it was on in London, me and my girl, and I said I'd love to. That's that's the part I must play, and so it was arranged that I would uh, come to New York to do it. And uh, then Robert changed his mind and said, "Yes, I'd like to go over to New York and play it." So I said, "Well," they said, "He's going to come over for at least a year." I said, "It doesn't matter. It's not. That's not the point. I'll do my version of it when it's my turn." And so a year later. Um, in fact, I took over from Robert just for Christmas holiday, just for two weeks, and uh, that gave me a chance of bringing in my own new material. Must I explain, when you do something like Me and My Girl, um, you are allowed not to, not to, you, you probably have to stand in the same footprints as, as the other person because of the choreographic moves. I don't want to tread on your moment, but I will, when, it, when I have an opportunity, I will bring in my own shtick, my own business that I've stolen from other comics for all these years and I've had nothing to do with it. I've never been able to use it. Um, and that's, what, that's exactly what I did. I waited a year and then one of the best times I ever had was in me and my girl with this new material and uh, remembering Lupino Lane in me and my girl. And it was just a lovely completion of a circle of waiting 40 years to do something that brought you into show business. Gene, what brought you to do Fit to be Tied? <coughs> what was it that achieved you? Well, I, the role, I mean, I just, I, I would have probably done that role no matter what play she was in. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I, I liked the play very much, but the, the role, I could, I just couldn't turn it down. I couldn't turn it down. It, it, she's, she's so outrageous and at the same time is, is so, uh, to me, so um, moving it, when she's able to sort of look inside herself, which is very rare. She, she doesn't do that very often. But to be able to play someone who is that outrageously funny and, and kind of wildly over the top, and then to show that that really is her yes, protection that she puts on because she's, she's fraught with so much guilt and, and pain because of her relationship with her son. Um, it, was, it was just irresistible. Was it difficult to develop? <coughs> Sorry. Was it difficult to develop? No, not, not really. I mean, I had a tremendous amount of help from the playwright, which was nice because he was present at every single rehearsal, and the director, who and they are very good friends and have worked together before, so that was an enormous advantage because they know and trust each other so well. And... Uh, they were both able to help help me a great deal, but it was just one of those parts that I just I could hear her in my head as soon as I read it. I just heard I could hear her, and I know when I read a play when I don't hear that voice in my head. I know I've got my work cut out for me with her. I I could I heard her as soon as I read it, and the the playwright was pleased that I sort of got his humor and his style and his rhythm so quickly, which 
I said, well, considering she's such a lunatic, that's sort of a frightening thought. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe for your husband, not for me. <laughs> you know? But um, it, was, it, was, it was like a part I did in a Christopher Drang play called Laughing Wild. She had thir it was a 13 and a half page monologue where you sit in a straight back chair and talk to the audience for a half an hour of these mad, hilarious non sequiturs. And she proceeds to sort of have a nervous breakdown. It was terrifying, terrifying, both parts, but just irresistible. So. When you talk about challenge, you use the word loosely, but that really is a role that is a challenge yeah. for, for, yeah. for any actress. And you, it is an exhausting yeah. part, which didn't help when I broke my ankle. <laughs> but um, but it's, uh, it's like running a marathon every night, but it's a great deal of fun. This is a pothole and uh, Columbus, Columbus Circle. Circle. Watch yeah, out, there's a crosswalk in Columbus mm -hmm. Circle. Jay, you, um, you said something uh, that, uh, about uh, Zoe, and I think I, I want to go a little farther. And then I met Zoe Colwell. Uh, what, uh, what happened, because here you have been trained as an opera singer and you came out of country western and rock, and then you, you bump into one of the great actresses of our day, and... How did that, what happened to you? Tell me more about that experience. It must have been ex both exciting, maybe scary. What? Uh, definitely more exciting than scary. I, I, I'm a bit ashamed to say that I, I didn't know who Zoe was. I, um, small town Texas, okay? Um, 200 at the football match. That's right. Um, at the rodeo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I went in and sang for them, and uh, I, I read the, sh uh, the side that they gave me. And I told the, my manager that sent me, it's great, but, you know, I'm pretty content with the way things are going. Uh, and they called me back and said, just come and read with Zoe Caldwell. And I was like, oh, Zoe Caldwell, uh, fine, sure. <laughs> but I went in and met her, and she's this tiny little petite woman but just a magnetism and a, just a tornado energy around her. And immediately I was, I was so taken with her and, and I knew that I would learn as much uh, from her as probably anybody in my life. And uh, before I even read with her, um, I was just like, uh, I'll really, uh, I'll do whatever. <laughs> I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> I'll cancel everything, and I'll play Philadelphia in a 200-seat house that turned out to change my life. And uh, it really, uh, it was, I've been so blessed. Talking about presence, uh, oh, yeah. so Caldwell, there's a stationary tornado, which is just there, whirling, and it's amazing. And how do you, I mean, as, as a person with so much less experience than Jim and Daniel, it's such an intangible thing, that, that presence and that power. Where do you get it? Mm -hmm. Is it? I guess it comes from the years of experience that you're talking about in front of a stage. But, I think so. Yeah. Would you say that, Jim? It's a passion. It's a passion that you... That I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you see... You said earlier on, um, when Richard walked on the stage, boom, you zoomed in. You zoomed in on something that was magnetic. You don't know what it was. That, I don't know what it is, but it's charisma. You recognize it. I recognize it when I go to a play and I look and I cannot take my eyes off that person. They're not doing anything. Uh. Dame Sybil Thorndike mm. was one of the greatest listeners ever. She didn't have to talk. She just sat on the stage knitting. 
listening to the dialogue. And you thought, why am I looking at that woman? The action's over there. I can't take my eyes off. She's listening so perfectly. You I can't take your eyes It's that I mean, charisma. a lot of it is inborn, but, I, but that's the one thing I know that experience gives you, is that you have, if you don't have self-confidence on stage, you cannot have, you cannot draw an audience that way. Right. It's even in life, people who aren't actors, you know, your friends who, there's just something, there's an ease, there's a comfortableness, in, they're just comfortable in their skin, where they are. There's something very magnetic about people like that, actors or not. That's and that's what experience gives you on stage. Without experience. Exactly. You cannot simply walk on and do it. It has to be learned, acquired over years, in my view. Well, here we have the exception, though. <laughs> <laughs> but he might well, have, but he's probably very self confident. We're going to have to take a break well, right sure. now, and then we'll come back and, and continue this because I think this is very important. You, the people here who have had the experience and the knowledge of what to call on to get that presence, either having it or making it for themselves, and here the young man who is enormously talented that comes on and says. Gosh, isn't it easy? <laughs> or is it? So we'll come right back, and, and please don't go away, and just stretch and sit right down again, and we'll go into the rest of the seminar. Thank you. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, and today's seminar is on the performance with a wonderfully marvelous, talented group of performers it is today. And continuing with the discussion is George White and Brendan Gill. And we're going to go on with what it is to work in the theater. George, you want to pick up where we left off? Right. We were, we were just about to focus on, on Adam and say, we, and we were talking about experience. And, and we left you with the, the, the macro we threw to you to try to deal with. But, I mean, here you are, you are really, it's, you're almost having on-the-job training, aren't you? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I mean, having the, the background that I have in starting in, in rock clubs, really playing those places teaches a hard lesson about about your self-confidence and your confidence in your your abilities and um, it's it, it, at least How, what it, keep going with that what it taught Why? me was that you really need to to overemphasize that confidence because you know going out there on those stages a lot of times you may think you're doing the greatest job and and really know and love what you do but people still aren't paying attention they're still not listening so it, it, it just you have to it's either going to break you or it's going to make you reinforce that confidence in your ability even more. And I think that, fortunately for me, it had the positive effect. And when I made the transition to, to theater and to doing Rent, um, luckily, f for whatever reason on this planet, I never had the, the butterflies, I never had the nervousness. From the first night I went out there, even downtown, it just felt very natural, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm lucky in the, in, the, in, the, in the instance that, you know, the transition between playing a rock club and playing, uh, you know, a, a theater, doing a theater performance with this particular show wasn't that different. I was lucky enough that this show dealt with a lot of the same situations, and it was, the music was similar and that type of situation, so I was lucky in that instance. But um, I think that having that, having that background of... of and, and I'm sure that a lot of actors, most actors, have, have experienced um, the agony of defeat, if you will, you know, of, of just of being on stage and giving your all and just not getting anything in return. And 
as I said before, that's either going to break you or it's going to make you stronger. And in my instance, thank God, it, it made me stronger. So. Well, now, the quintessential part of, of any of that coming back, I would think, also is from the operatic, the singer's point of view. Uh, the operatic singer, we have rock, and, of course, you've, you've, you haven't done, Adam, you haven't done opera yet. Well, Correct. Grand <laughs> opera, as opposed to grand opera. Right. So, yeah. But, Jay, don't, what, what about you in, in relation to the audience and, and trying to deal with, with getting that experience? Um, uh, I have to echo what Adam said a little bit. I feel very fortunate because... Uh, the play master class is a natural setting for me. I've done several master classes myself with uh, some really uh, great singers and some very <coughs> mean teachers. That was a polite way of saying it. But um, <laughs> I feel very much, uh, and to have been in the creative process with Terrence, it was really, it was really uh, very fortunate because he let me put a lot of me into my character. Um, as far as the feedback from the audience, you know, sometimes it's really frustrating because, like you said, uh, uh, with rock and with all of theater, sometimes you do your very best and the response isn't the same. You know, I mean, I find with me, I sing, I sing an aria that is, that's really difficult for me. And uh, at first, the thought of having to sing this thing every night, I'm like, no way. I just... Uh, it, really frightened me um, and uh, sometimes when I sing it the my best I don't get the response from the audience that I do you know other times it's so that aspect of it's very frustrating it's also filtered through the character of Maria Carlos as, as, as your teacher too so you've got two reactions you're, you're dealing with the, yeah. the theatrical one vis-a-vis -vis the character and the other one vis-a-vis -vis the audience yeah that's the that's the biggest pressure for me when I read the script was, my God, I've got to move Maria Callas. I mean, she's supposed to be moved after I'm done singing. That was, a, that's tough. And, and people don't always, don't always see what you think they see or what you want them to see. Um, I, I know from my experience, I've, I'll, I'll have a, a performance that I think was particularly awful on, on, a, on a given night. And, and you know, and on, and on that night, I'll get the greatest response I've ever had. So it doesn't always work the way you, you know, sometimes it works to your advantage, sometimes it works to your disadvantage. Um, and I think that that's part of what we were talking about before, about personalities of audiences. It's, it's part of, of learning and, and knowing um, how fickle audiences are, and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, people are there to be entertained, and uh, it's our job to do that. Sometimes, though, you can, you can go out there and do something, and as you say, you think, oh, my God, I'm flying tonight. And you come off stage, and you, you know, and the director comes around and says, that's the biggest load of yeah, no, absolutely, I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and you die. Yeah. You know, what you do die. you do? What do you do? Then? Well, you get, you, the wonderful thing about the theater is that you can come back and do it tomorrow night. Yeah. That's why I and love it. And you keep it. that in mind when you're, when they're dying and you're dying? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, as Jim says, that's part of the furniture. If you can't stand that kind of heat, get out of the kitchen. I mean, it's never going to be wonderful all the time. And hopefully you don't know you're dying until it's over and you're off stage. <laughs> that is an interesting lesson to learn as an actor in that sometimes those times when you just feel that it was terrific, are times when maybe from the outside it just wasn't really clicking. You're thinking, was I just responding to it 
totally internally on a personal level that it suddenly felt comfortable. Maybe when it feels real comfortable isn't necessarily when you're at your best. And that's what's hard to know, which is then sort of valuable and horrifying the first time you see yourself do anything on camera because you're so stunned at, because you don't come across the way you think of yourself, you know. And that's, that's a hard thing to get used to. I've just barely now gotten to the point where when I watch myself on camera, I watch the work. And I think, okay, did that scene come across? Did that moment work the way that I hoped it would, mm -hmm. you know? Instead of thinking, oh my God, the way I look, the way I sound, my voice, the way I move, the way, you know? I finally, I, there's nothing I can do about that anymore. You know? <laughs> I mean, so I, I kind of... But sometimes, you know, it, you know. It, 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 we're talking about uh, when you're flying and when you feel good about sometimes isn't that because uh, you're you're stepping out of the role a yes. little bit and looking at yourself in a self-conscious way which mm -hmm. is why the director comes back and gives you a hard time because suddenly you're not as in it as yes. when you're doing it just normally but if you can stand back and say wow am I yeah. good well that's the, that's the hard balance to find especially in theater not necessarily so much in front of a camera but is that you have to be so concentrated on what you're doing, but at the same time, there's always that little part of your, your eye and your ear that has to be out there where the audience is. That's, mm -hmm. that's the hard thing, which isn't qu quite the same when you're and on Gil camera. Like that, if you, if you, I mean, he's a real, uh, he's amazing. I mean, he can go out on the stage and be sitting there with tears pouring out of his eyes, and he comes off the stage and he said, have you seen that woman's hat in the front row? It's absolutely Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fruit on top of something I don't know. <laughs> and they and they and they is moving everybody to tears. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I would. I don't think I could go that far. <laughs> I don't know. I, no, no. Daniel, you have a tremendous part and a very long part. I went with monologue or something. Uh, is that a very difficult part to me memorize, or is that not? W which difficult? one is that? The way you're playing right now, taking sides. Oh, that, I'm only on for an hour, for just under an hour. Uh. I'm only on for half the play. It's wonderful. <laughs> I don't think I could do it anymore because it's. I've never known a play which required emotional uh, commitment the way this does. And Ed Harris, who's a darling guy and a marvelous actor never lets me alone for a second. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, he's interrogating me right the way through. But you dominate things. Yes. Yes, that's right. Well, it's 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 cox and box, and it's at each other. It's like I said to him the other night. It's, it's like being on the court with Pancho Gonzalez, and Ed said, "Who the hell is Pancho?" <laughs> <laughs> I felt that he's a tennis player. You know, oh, tennis, right? <laughs> but that's what it is. It must be what that kind of thing is because the ball you send the ball and it comes back like a shoom. Yeah. Did the director give you that, or do you both bring that? Oh no, we were well. He he he's the sort of moderator, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, and and very skillfully he's been too, David Jones. But Ed, you know, is just uh, we've hardly said a word to each other about the work. In in one sense, it's just the way it is, and it's marvelous. You don't have to. But say you said it. that you were so pleased that he was one who was known as a film actor. Was really well, trained I, in the theater, I, I, and it was. I yeah. think it's wonderful when movie actors of the of the caliber of Ed come back into the theater, because it it galvanizes us and it regenerates us, and it, it's it's terrific. But sometimes when you've been in the movies a long time, uh, I haven't I had the privilege of seeing Pacino yet in in his O'Neill, but I hear that's that's wonderful. But then he was trained as a stage actor yes. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 easier. But if you're in movies constantly, then you're really only working from here. 
you know, and well, theatre is a whole body. What about when, you were in, when you're in movies? How do I'm you feel? frightened to death. I have no, I'm nervous of the camera like a kitten. And I worked with Michael Caine not long ago. Mike came from, from, from London. And Michael, as soon as they say action, Mike just, he just blossoms. He just, he just <laughs> loves it. When they say action, I'm like that. I, I'm, I'm very what is the big difference? Because it's a camera. It isn't, it isn't a person. And it's also immortalized. You see, even if you can do second or third take, the third take might be much worse than the first, and you're going to have it all the way. But there it is, it's on the screen. And I have, I don't, I've never developed that spontaneity mm -hmm. enough. I don't think I ever will now, I'm too old. But, mm -hmm. the, but in the theatre, you don't have that, you see. Mm -hmm. You have that wonderful freedom. Jim, you were yeah. No, my, my point was that um, over here in America, a lot of people have their training and then start in the theatre and use that as a stepping stone into a, a, a career in television or maybe films, but mainly television. And uh, when they're out of work, they have nothing else to do. But in England, we seem to use, we always go back to home base. We always go back to square one, which is the theater. We use our theater to make, to, into the theater, we have forays, just a foray into a television series or into a film. But in, we run back to the theater because that's the only way we can learn. We can't learn anymore after we've done the film. We sit and wait for the next one. What are we learning? You can't learn by being out of work, by turning down everything. You can learn by turning down rubbish. I, I, I think you should turn down um, rubbish. I would rather, I've spent my whole career being out of work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, mainly because um, I will only accept quality material. It, it's, it's a waste of my life to commit myself to rubbish just because somebody called an agent wants to earn his money from me and I, that's why I don't get on with agents very well I've had quite a few of them but um, no they have a different way they're there to make money out of you I'm there to p push my career and if my career is on hold because the material they're offering um, doesn't is rubbish I will not accept it and of course that's when a few little arguments begin that's a luxury that you can it's, afford now yes but it's a but I've gone through life doing that there, there wasn't it hasn't always been um, successful there's not a lot of money in the theater as you know and so if, if you can just be able to survive without having to lower your standards and you, grow, you know you lower your standards it's that night that there's a, a somebody in there who wants to use and they're watching you do rubbish and you're only as good as your material as Daniel says yeah. mm. just as good absolutely as your material. true you can't do anything without good material That's well right. you know and also there's one other thing that I was uh, taking this this is not apropos just that, but we're, I'm worrying about time a little bit. Um, have you ever been, uh, you must have coming out of the music hall tradition, heckled? Or were you talking about people throwing pennies? And yes. I know the side. But how do you deal with that? And of course, that's a learning experience that goes back to the rock club, too. Well, the only time I was heckled was, but they don't do it in England. It was, it was well, I was in Glasgow Empire in the, the large theater there and doing, moving about to avoid the pennies. And when I say pennies, they were big ones, and they used to, they used to sharpen them on a, on a stone. I, so those were razor sharp. They would throw them, and they would go thump, and embed themselves in the stage. Now, that is a frightening experience. And somebody, one of the men who was throwing something, called something out to me. And I said, and you're not supposed to answer them back. Not in English theater. You're never supposed to 
There's no such thing as a heckless Unless stopper. you're Spike Milligan. Unless you're Spike Milligan. And I, he, he called something up, and I yelled, I yelled, I have one word for you, and like an idiot, he said, what? And I said, jump. That's all. And afterwards, afterwards, they were waiting for me outside the stage door, and there were a group of them, they were Hell's Angels type of kids who were there, and I was beaten up. And, uh, you're and kidding. I, no, I've beaten mm -hmm. up. The first time I've ever been really beaten up in my life. And... It taught me a lesson. You don't answer the heckler. Jim, <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. But that was how you cope. Hi, my name is Robin Roy, and I'm an actor. And I was riveted by Adam Pascal's performance in Rent. And thank you for the natural ability you have to speak to an audience. Thank you. And my question is, what will you do next, theater or music? Um, I think I'll always do music. Um, and that, that'll always be part of, of, uh, of my life. Um, but I, I'd like to continue to pursue acting as well. Um, hopefully, if I'm lucky enough, I'll be able to do both. Um, I, don't, I don't think that I, I'll do another musical, however. I mean, this is really the pinnacle of musicals' success. And I think that any... It'll never be this good again. Of course. And <laughs> to do another musical, at least from my perspective, would be a step down. So I think I've achieved what I need to achieve in this genre, and I'd like to move on. Hi, I'm Ronald Rand. I'm an actor and a playwright. I spent the last five years writing a play about the group theater, and I've had nine stage readings in the city thus far. And I was wondering what your advice would be to further the progress of the play from your years of experience. Where you want to take that? Don't say jump. Where don't say jump. Well, I did it at the Lambs Theater recently with Full House about three months ago. So now I'm sent it out to several regional theaters and a couple of Broadway producers. And the response has been positive. Do you have an agent? That's a standard question. Yes, I have an agent. Yeah. <laughs> well. But I do most of the pushing myself. Oh, do you have anyone else want to pick up on that? Uh, that's a tough play, of course. The group theater has... I mean, for actors, I would think it would be fraught with wonderful parts. Yes. And also terrifying because of all the people... Whether you're trying exactly. to depict Harold Clerman or, right, or exactly. the rest of the people it would be Oh, tough. we're talking the old group theater? Yeah. Group oh, theater. that must have been the most wonderful. Yeah. Hi, right. my name is Sabrina Musi. I'm currently studying theater at a community college, Mercer County Community College in New Jersey. Um, my question's for Justin Kirk. Do you have any suggestions as to places to go for training for acting who are for actors who are currently trying to pursue their career? Uh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I still don't know how I uh, felt about um, different places that I went. I guess auditing would probably be a smart idea. And I still think about going, doing, going back my, myself, you know, to class and things like that. But in terms of actual uh, places in New York, what's good? HB Studios is a good place, right? Mm -hmm. uh, historically, <laughs> historically so. Historically, yeah. Uh, but I would, uh, you know, suggest sort of um, uh, uh, watching and auditing before, you know, committing yourself to any place. Thanks. Thanks. Good luck. Thanks. Hi, my name's Abigail Solomon. I'm an actress. Um, I'll sort of throw this out to whoever wants to answer it. I'm wondering, over a long run, how much you're able to develop, expand, try new things with your character without feeling obligated or having a stage manager tell you to stick to what the director developed with you in rehearsal? 
I, that, I find that that uh, depends on the strength of your stage manager, <laughs> how much to what level they will decide uh, what was uh, done in rehearsal and, and, and otherwise. But I know just like a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, wow, I'm doing this all wrong. I should totally change the first two scenes. Hmm. But of course, I didn't have the balls to do that. <laughs> Adam? What is your I answer? think that, uh, that it's, it's much easier, at least for, for our cast and for myself personally, too, to try and explore things on an emotional level. Um, but like things like blocking and, and aspects of, of the performance such as that, um, they're, very, they're very rigid with that. And you know, if we, you're, you're in the wrong light. No, no, you're supposed to be on number two, not number three. You know, like you, they're, very, they're very specific with the way that they want you to, how they want it to look, the aesthetic presentation of the show. But, um, but the interaction between the characters, at least for me, is always changing. And, and that's part of the, the beauty of doing theater, is that you can always do that and, and find more of this character. That's a question that always comes up. Would you like to take it around? Yeah. Hmm? Daniel or... Daniel, what would you say? What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm not case, how much blocking is, is given to you and how much direction is given to you by the director? Is that... Uh, how, how, you want to change how the much character? Or well, I, I mean, I think in a text, a straight text that, that I'm working on at the moment, it, it, it's, it's wonderful within the framework to be able to do certain things and it being a very emotionally draining piece and you can't do it on technique, you really have to get there every night in an emotional level. I think it is very... Uh, not difficult to change something fundamentally, but because you can you can do outrageous things. Ed is amazing. He'll come, you know. He's like a puma. If you if you leave his eyes for a minute, he's off round the table. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's terrific. And and uh, he he's probably more able to to experiment in terms of where the blocking is than I am. But on the whole, you bed down into something ultimately that goes, that works, and within certain, I mean, there's certain inflections you can change or moments. I mean, I've been doing that constantly in this play in previews because uh, I had a different man to play with, wonderful, in, in London. But Ed, who has a pervasive presence and a very strong charisma, uh, is a very different kettle of fish. So I've had to move. He's humanized me in some ways. You know, so I've had to change and I'm still changing. But that isn't structural. That's, that's kind of inside, you know, how you treat an inflection inside, really. Well, how do you treat an inflection inside? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a play is made up of, name it, 10,000, 20,000 moments. I mean, that's all theatre is. It's moments that are created uh, during the rehearsal period. Um, the director has his own idea as to where he wants the play to go, but within that idea he allows you certain certain freedoms. And I suppose that every night after two or three or four weeks or two or three or four months, you know, one doesn't go out there to do something different, one goes out there to polish that particular moment that you didn't hit on last night or to polish this. But there are constant moments being added and uh, hopefully you're adding more or managing to keep up with those that you're losing unconsciously. But you go to see any production or the director will, he'll see it at that level and then over the months when he goes back it'll be at that level and nobody will agree with him, he'll say it's dropped. And you won't agree because gradually you've changed your performance slightly. He knows because he's been away for so long. He comes back and suddenly you realize, yes, it was dropping. I needed that. I needed that push. I needed the director to come in because it's his, it's his baby. We took over, but it's his baby and he knows where it should be. That's what he wanted. 
That's the advantage. Mm -hmm. What's well, the advantage of a long run? I mean, long runs are difficult because, after all, you think, "Oh my Lord, I don't know if I can do this one more time." You, of course, remind yourself that the, you're telling a great story to this audience who's never heard it before, and it's, you know, gets you excited again. But it is, it's hard. But the advantage is that you suddenly start finding things. You think, "I've mined everything out of this character. I can." And then all of a sudden, one night, you think, "Oh my Lord, why didn't I ever think of this before?" And you suddenly. You get this great feeling of joy of being able to add something to it, and I think unless you're grossly affecting, you know, or changing something with dynamic with the other actors, I think there's certainly, hopefully, that uh, kind of freedom. I know the other night, right in the middle of a scene, I started to cry, and I thought, "Wow, where did that come from?" But it didn't, um, and it now has changed that particular moment for me for the rest of the run, and and uh, and it, it wasn't anything that that changed. The dynamic of the scene as a whole, it, it uh, because it it just came out of the fact that we've been doing it, and, and it was right, and but it just sort of happened. But that's the fun of you know of doing a, a play as opposed to doing something again like on camera where you get little to no, if, to no rehearsal, you know, and one or two takes. You just never have that time. You just have to go on your best instincts and hopefully. You have good ones. You know. Well, you know, Jean, too. You you are, are both a Siddler and a and a Durang actress, and, and <laughs> it, it, well, it makes sense now. And two, but but part of the fun, I would think, and part of the thing that might keep you terrified, but or keep you on the cutting edge of of your art, would be the the balance between these kind of outrageous, hilarious things and that other very dark side mm -hmm. that both those playwrights have, mm -hmm. which is a nice tightrope to walk, but also I yeah. think it's tricky for you, and that's why you would constantly be finding those those dark sides of that hilarity. Yes, and sometimes they surprise you, and that's when your concentration, that's when you have, that's why you have to keep your concentration up, because those moments don't, don't happen if your concentration starts to waver, and you you think, oh, God, how long a break do we have after the matinee today? Well, <laughs> where am I going to go eat dinner, you know, <laughs> things like that. That's, that's when those moments are not going to come, not going to happen, <laughs> but... Right. Uh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but we have to bring this to a close. This is the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, and they're coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Today's seminar is on the performers, and we have the most wonderful group of performers here that have shared their experiences, their knowledge, and whatever it is that they have to give in this short time that we have, they have given to us. And I am indeed grateful to all of you for being on the seminar. The seminar is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And it is but one in the series of seminars that we do on working in the theater. Thank you very much for being here. And I hope you have learned and enjoyed today's seminars. Thank you.
It was a good one, wasn't it? Yeah. I think so.